0: Welcome to episode two of this new podcast, which we're calling Infinite Games. I'm Tyler and I'm here with Drew. We're still experimenting with different formats for the podcast, so each episode will be a bit different until we settle on a format we like. Uh, Drew can explain what we're doing this week.
1: Yeah, so as Tyler mentioned, we're playing with different formats uh, to see which one hits uh, for the podcast that we're thinking about launching. And this week we have the format, uh, which we roughly call Bullish or Bearish. So we talk through a series of topics and we state our position. Are we bullish or bearish? And we defend that position. We empathize with the other person's position. When uh, great points are made, we ask questions and the like. So looking forward to it.
0: Yeah. And I think hopefully we disagree or else it'll take like 30 seconds, right?
1: <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. I think, I think we'll disagree on some of these. I,
0: I know yeah. we're, we're, we're on the same
1: page in terms of some others, but yeah. 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 Cool. Well, what's up first? All right, first up, we have NFTs. And based on feedback uh, from the last podcast that you just shared, I will uh, briefly give at least my understanding, my definition of NFTs. And I will say that NFTs basically allow you to prove digital ownership. We're familiar with the idea of like digital products, you have zero marginal cost, abundance, uh, z- zero cost of replication. NFTs sort of reverse that, but in the good way. Uh, So if information wants to be abundant, NFTs allow you to prove ownership. It's sort of a status play in some cases, Uh, but as we'll get into in the bullish and bearish case, I think it can also represent plane tickets, insurance claims, contracts, all of these other things the same way when we originally thought about uh, I'm already making my case, so I'll shut up after <laughs> this. <time. laughs> when we originally thought about the blockchain, cryptocurrency came to mind. We didn't think about collectibles and art, but now that's already expanded, and I think that trajectory will continue. Uh, but yeah,
0: cool. So, so just to because you know a lot more about NFTs than I do, but let me let me give my version of what it is and tell me if I get yeah. any of this wrong. Like because I've never I've kind of read about it, but I haven't actually bought or sold an NFT or whatever. But I could take something like a JPEG, an image, for example. That's really commonly being used for NFTs. It it doesn't have to be that. It could be any digital good. But I could take an image and then what's called Mint It, right? which basically turns it into an NFT, which allows someone to prove that they own... And we we can get into this too. Does it really prove that they own it? But according to the laws of this NFT universe, everyone agrees this person owns this image and they can sell it and all that. And the same way you can buy and sell Bitcoin or whatever, you can buy and sell the NFT, but it stands for non-fungible token, meaning there's only one of these. Whereas Bitcoin, there's however many millions or whatever, and they're all the same. There's this one NFT for this one image and only one person owns it. Is that more or less correct?
1: Yep, yep. I would say okay. that's correct. And not to get uh, like too tactical too quickly, but there are also cases where you mentioned one of one, but there can be a one of in case where, hey, this NFT has... Ten, it can have 10 owners and each of these represent like one edition of this NFT. One thing that gets really interesting is when we start to talk about ownership chains and data, data provenance. So in that case where this one NFT has 10 additions and they should all be worth the same amount. But if Steph Curry owned this one, which is identical, quote unquote, to this other one, you can see the data provenance in the ownership chain. And mm. all of a sudden, if we attribute value to the fact that Steph Curry owned it, all of a sudden that is worth three times or 10 times more than these other, quote unquote,
0: identical NFTs. Interesting. Yeah. And that same thing happens with real life stuff, right? Here's a pair of shoes. You could buy these shoes anywhere, but Steph Curry wore them. And so they're worth more or something like that.
1: And I was also going to say, when you talked about, like, according to the the laws of the NFT world, like, you own this NFT. For the first time, I thought about the way uh, we look at real estate. According to the laws of the US, you own this real estate. But if someone, like, not to get too violent, but took a gun and shot you (laughs) and said, now I own this, the laws have changed, right? Oh, and that's another thing, though. That's another thing, excuse me, about NFTs, where it's like you have asymmetric defense where the government can't take your NFTs. A person with a gun can't take your NFTs. Like you have that key. So it's actually more defensible than a piece of real estate would be. Uh, And that gets into this sort of like properties in terms of like properties of assets. I I think it's a very, very like not strong asset class, but just the attributes of ownership. It has like a very strong ownership model compared to like physical assets.
0: OK, so let's start. Let's start there because the word ownership is thrown around a lot with NFTs. And I'm I mean, if in case it's not obvious, I'm going to be a huge bear here. I'm i am a hater yeah. when it comes to NFTs. I should give a quick disclaimer. I am not opposed to the, co- the idea that 10 years from now, NFTs are very cool and cool stuff's being done with them. I am a hater about what's currently being done with NFTs. One of the reasons is this ownership thing, which mm-hmm. is, OK, so first of all, Uh, The NFT is just basically a link to an image. It doesn't prove that you own it. Like, I could take any image and mint an NFT of it and sell it to somebody, but I never had ownership of it to begin with. Um, So, like, it's, it's a separate type of ownership from how we classically think of the word ownership. Normal ownership is a social construct that only exists insofar as governments will help you enforce it, right? Like, to the house example, I own this house not... Because of any reason except if someone comes and takes a gun and takes it from me, the government will bring bigger guns and take it back for me. Without the government's backing, I'm not sure what ownership even means. That gets into this idea. Well, two ideas, actually. The
1: first one is of social consensus. Like You could also fork Bitcoin or fork Ethereum, but will that Bitcoin on that chain that you forked be worth the same amount as this Bitcoin? no because it lacks that legitimacy it lacks that social consensus so we're not looking to like at nation states for legitimacy we're looking to like those social like people think about 51% attacks in terms of uh, mining and like do you have 51% of the compute power no do you have 51% of the social consensus because if you do that's where the value now accrues Mm-hmm. Uh, and I get I don't want to get into a big like nation state conversation versus <laughs> like in crypto land in the metaverse. Uh, but like where we look to for that legitimacy uh, is changing. I, I, yeah, I would just compare it to that. And then there's also this other thing around like attention versus ownership. So the more attention that this NFT has, the more valuable that NFT is and the more value it holds to the quote unquote owner, the person who can say I own that. And you also have it. I think it's sixty-two fifty-nine. There are a couple of like crypto punks and now uh, cryptos and like personalities and brands being built around specific NFTs in these collections. And sure, like you can, there's the right click and save people. You can right click and save that NFT. But now Twitter and these sort of like web two companies are getting in the space, and they're saying like, no. The same way you sign on to. OpenSea instead of having an email and a password and sign with your wallet, saying now you can do transactions. You can sign, t- you know, onto Twitter saying like, "Hey, you own this NFT." So it was. Go ahead. D-
0: d- I- doesn't that invalidate the decentralized nature of the NFTs if you're like the NFTs- it, gonna, okay. I, but,
1: yeah yeah I was going to say it was already working before Twitter got on board before mm-hmm. TikTok gets on board and these other sh- social platforms get on board it just adds legitimacy but NFTs were already selling for millions of dollars before that was true so it's also shout out to Prasana cuz we've done a few report reviews and sometimes I'll get into these like interesting like logical corners and he'll back up and say like what are we talking about it's working we just need to figure out why it's working because it's not a question of whether it's working it's it's working we see that Mm -hmm. we can objectively see that now it's a question of understanding that instead of questioning will it work because it's already working
0: uh yeah but i think there's a built into that is will it continue working we don't know that it will a lot of people speculate that a huge amount of the volume of nft uh Like sales are coming in basically for money laundering, um, and that uh, market manipulation is happening where a small group of people are basically buying and selling their own NFTs. Because one of the things about how the blockchain works is you can't tell who's buying and who's selling. So it would be very easy for someone to like mint a new NFT, sell it to themselves. They lose some amount of money on the gas fees or whatever, uh, but m- more or less they're just giving money to themselves, inflating the value, and then waiting for some sucker to come along who doesn't know that this whole thing's been manipulated. We have no idea how much that's happening, but that's speculation. Yeah,
1: it's it's it's, it's two thoughts. It's one around like a pump and dump thing. And it's another around money laundering. And money laundering, it's it's happening here. It's happening in real estate. It's happening in cash. It's happening in mm-hmm. any asset class. Like that's just table stakes. It's going to happen. Uh, well, but and it's easier the, here
0: than it is with a lot of things because there's no regulation. There's no paper trail, really. You're right, though. Apparently, I, fine art is supposed to be... They say fine art is like a huge <laughs> money laundering industry.
1: Uh, yeah, and then... Man, don't get me into like 10, 1031 exchanges in fine art. But anyways, <laughs> like, yeah. like, So it, it's happening, right? It's happening. It's a question of like how much is it happening? And then the other topic was around sort of like the pump and dump schemes. Mm-hmm. I'll even take that one step further and say that there have been like rug pulls. We can also look to traditional I wouldn't say asset classes but like web2 companies like Robinhood where whether it was legal or not to go back to like social consensus versus what the government says they allow like the fact that they'd say hey we're just going to halt trading on this one stock like that broke social consensus but it was okay, you know, legally. So yeah, I, agree. I find it hard to yeah I find it hard to like attach to like the the money laundering the money laundering argument. Well, no, yeah. so
0: j- just to be clear what I mean by that, I'm not saying there couldn't possibly be a use case for it or that the whole thing should be thrown out because some people are doing that. I do think it's hard to know how much it's working uh, because all these other things, you know, if you read the history of, you know, financial markets <laughs> like it was the wild west before you know, I think like the 1920s or I I think the Great Depression, a lot of uh, in response to that, a lot of new regulation came out. There have been moments like that. And I I guess I don't know what my point is. You're right. There's a lot of legal pump and dump and other scams going on in the financial markets. But we know there's also a lot of real, like it's running the world. It's unclear how much real activity there is with NFTs.
1: It also reminds me of just let's talk about a type of business where you sort of own or control the top of funnel and you don't have a monetization strategy. You don't know how you're going to make money, but you have the top of funnel. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how you'll make money, because if you yeah. have a list of 30 ways, you will figure out how to make money. And NFTs remind me remind me of that, because like, let's just spin the scenario where you're thinking about Nike. Let's say they sponsor a marathon and we'll give each person that completes this marathon an NFT then that NFT is like good for sweaters, shoes, discounts on this, or just the flex that you finish this marathon and you can prove it, right? Like you can prove this. It's not a like a a vaccination card where you can, you know, <laughs> write this thing down and say I did it. No, like they they said I did it. I did it. And even if that completely blows up in my face, there are all of these other use cases. Back to planes, tickets, insurance claims all of these things uh, that are possible use cases. So that's what makes me bullish. Not that I'm attached to like one specific like implementation or outcome. It's just imagining how vast the possibilities are. And only one of them has the work like for a counter or a bearish case to break down. Yeah.
0: So I want to, let's dive into that because this is where I've had uh, various conversations, especially like on Twitter. I made the mistake of like, getting in the replies of some Twitter thread about this. And you do not want to talk shit about NFTs on Twitter because people come out of the woodwork. Um, But the place that those conversations all break down is people reference all these other use cases. And I, I asked a simple question, which is, give me a use case that is useful. And when I say useful, I don't mean the way, like a lot of people make comparisons between NFTs and baseball cards where they're like, well, people trade baseball cards. Baseball cards are stupid. I don't, I don't care if people <laughs> trade baseball cards. It, it's just a novelty that has no real importance in the world. Something that's actually useful uh, and something that couldn't easily be done with traditional tech. So you mentioned insurance, you mentioned plane tickets, <laughs> like, yes, you could do those with NFTs, but in what way is it better to do them with NFTs? Let's take this. So something that a
1: lot of people are talking about, and we just started at Trends VC, is around lifetime deals, tokenized lifetime deals. Where there's this guy Danny Postman, who just tweeted about this, and I jumped in there and like posted our second NFT, which is under auction right now. He held a lifetime uh, like deal program for his company Headline, mm-hmm. and after those lifetime deals were sold, they were then sold on secondary markets for like 20X, their original price. There was all types of funny business with like people juggling credentials, all of this. With NFTs, what you can do is not only say like, hey, I'm going to offer you a lifetime deal. I'm whitelisting this to be able... like It can now be traded and you can programmatically say, hey, I want 1%, 3%, 10% of the secondary sales. So any sort of admin call support calls that you have, you almost have like your micro marketplace built on the back of this NFT collection that you've released. That's not possible. You don't know like how many times those NFTs that lifetime deal has changed hands. You don't get to participate in that secondary activity, uh, in this like web two world. So that's just one use case where it's just like, that was either impossible or hard to track or implement in previously. And like now that's possible. It doesn't have like bowls and rainbows and sparkles. This is just a new use case.
0: But let me run, let me run a possible way this could be broken by you and correct me about what I'm mistaking here. So this this type of thing has existed with licensing for years, like software company. If you think before the days of SaaS, when you'd like buy like a CD with a software on it, they'd have licensing that's like, either you can resell this or you can't or various things in between. Now, the question is, how do you enforce that? And you have to know that it got bought or sold. But what's stopping someone from buying an NFT and then giving the, uh, I don't know, like the technical terminology here, but like the underlying code, the crypto, like the keys to someone else, rather than actually selling it as a new transaction on the blockchain?
1: Yeah, if you want to give me your passphrase, I will happily take it and the rest of your crypto funds and your NFTs. Of course, you could transfer that to a wallet, isolate that wallet and say like, hey, I'll give you access to this. But you're also still like you've compromised the security of that wallet, if that makes sense. So this has to be done like with your brother or your someone that you trust <laughs> well, a lot. You're assuming same- you have other yeah. stuff
0: in the wallet, though. Right? Like if if, if you say, I'm going to get a, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Even if you isolate this of like, we're going to transfer this to like a pure wallet where the only purpose of this wallet is to transfer it to another person. If Mm -hmm. there are like rights, if there's anything scarce that comes along with that access, you have to live with the fact that this person that you just gave that wallet to either the new person has to live with the fact that you also have that passphrase Or you have to live with the fact that this other person has a passphrase. And I'm not saying Mm, that this is out of the realm of possibility, because some people will say like, hey, I'm afraid of losing my key to my wallet. So what I'll do is if I have three brothers, I'll say all of you have to sign to give me access to these funds and this quote unquote insurance. There's a there's a term for this type of uh, security for wallets. Social. The term isn't coming to me now. But again, that's like a very like trusted. Yeah. Environment okay.
0: or like structure that you have to build. Yeah. That's a more compelling answer than I've heard thus far. Thank you. Yeah. Um <laughs> so I, I don't know where we do you go have from. A second go one. Well, I'm yeah. I'm curious. Okay, that sounds like interesting-ish. And also yeah. like rainforests <laughs> are being burned down for this use case that I'm not sure anyone cares. Like how how many people are selling lifetime deals that are then getting resold and there's like a weird black market for these lifetime deals? It's interesting. Yeah. Is there just a second one? Off the top of your head? Yeah. So, another one that comes to mind, and we may,
1: there's a 30 to 50% chance that we may do this with TransVC eventually, but you're seeing these hyper aligned communities that are gated by NFT access. So, it's a similar use case, but different in that I'm not going to sell the NFT. My intention isn't to sell this NFT to someone else or sell this lifetime deal to someone else. This NFT has given me access to this community. So the more value that I deliver to this community, and there are ways you can do this directly. I'm going to host high signal discussions in this community, or I'm going to take my business and say, the fact that you belong to this community, now you get a discount on one of my products or services. You can create value in any number of ways. But the fact that you hold this NFT, that has value that's attached to it. And that becomes more valuable through you delivering more value to this community. And even if you don't want to sell it, you can take out loans on this NFT. So it's like your loan to value ratio could increase all these other things. And this gets like very sci-fi, like very quickly. (laughs) And I actually do want, like we need a genre of sci-fi for this stuff because that's Mm. the thing. Like the possibilities are just crazy. And yeah, we're not there yet. It's hard (laughs) to see, but just the fact that there are so many possibilities, only one, two, three have to work. But the, 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 yeah, I just think the likelihood that, yeah. Much more than like one, two or three use
0: case use cases will work. I would love a genre of fiction around this because this is something I'm a little bummed about about the world right now is none of the like I'm being a hater about this, but if some twenty year old came up to me and was like, Well, okay, not NFTs, what tech should I go into? I'm not sure I'm like super excited about anything the way like for the the internet, mobile, local, so much stuff happened between two thousand and say 2012. I don't know what to get excited about like that. And I would love a storyteller because all of the use cases I hear for NFTs, I'm like, okay, it's kind of contrived. I'm not excited about it, even if it's real. I'd love someone to get me excited about it.
1: Yeah, that's a good point you made in terms of talking to someone who's coming up like, where should they go? Two answers come to mind. One is around sort of this world where it's sort of bifurcated. It's like NFTs and DeFi. Like now these spaces are big enough to, you have people in NFTs that don't know anything about DeFi. You have people in DeFi that don't know anything about NFTs. I think that's just a sign of the growth. And then the other space that comes to mind is around no-code. But I've been saying this since our low-code talk that we had, the first no-code report. It just Mm -hmm. feels, no-code just feels like technology. It's what happens with technology where you brought up the great example of uh i think it was around electricity where it's like you're just bringing the electricity <laughs> to a place and now this thing but be- thing becomes easier and that's that's just all it feels like it feels like a meta trend a smaller yeah. loop
0: within this bigger
1: fractal if you will
0: no co- I, actually no code's a great answer thank yeah. you <laughs> can i before we <laughs> Anything move on but let me, nfts for you let me Go let ahead. me ask well yeah that's I, and i'm <laughs> way more into like crypto in general than nfts yeah. specifically because it it feels a lot like an MLM right now. Like you, you use the word community. Trends VC actually has a community not built on NFTs. You might mm-hmm. supplement it with NFTs. There's like these communities for like the uh, lazy lions and the, the whatever apes. And I'm like, what is a community about a JPEG of a lion? Like, what is that? That's not a thing that people build communities around.
1: But like, what's the community of the United States? Like, we just made up the values that this country is supposed to hold, and then like, most people came here for a better opportunity. If they came here and wasn't forcibly brought here, uh, for those same opportunities, and it's just like it's it's all storytelling. It's it's just the the storyteller is the most powerful person in the world. I also wanted to touch on.
0: Go ahead. Well, telling a story 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 around geographic location, like we live near each other. Or whatever feels like a more compelling story than we all have the same picture of a lion but i guess you're right like humans are irrational
1: (laughs) yeah well yeah you're not getting the argument this is why (laughs) this is why any of this stuff works like we talk about layer one bitcoin ethereum like layers layer zero is people it's the only reason bitcoin shouldn't have value ethereum shouldn't have value but you're in the cryptocurrency it holds some type of value for you and it's because you believe it that's the only reason like any of this stuff works but i also would push back on the like geographic geographical thing because it's also like supreme or maybe like you're not in the fashion i'm not in the fashion either but you get people who are attached to these clothing brands or watch brands and now they have a community or tesla where you mm-hmm. would say that's getting closer to like geography but brands it's just storytelling man And that's the only reason any of this stuff works.
0: So, and this is my, this will be my last word. And then you can, if you want to have the actual last word here, um, this is the most believable and also least interesting argument for NFTs to me is that status symbols are real everywhere. People buy a $200,000 car that isn't functionally any different from a $50,000 car, uh, there's no argument that humans want status symbols, but I also consider this to be one of the most unsavory characteristics about humans. So people being like, you should get excited that now we have a new method for conspicuous consumption on the internet that that took this really democratic, democratic not financial-based passion of mine and turned the whole thing into speculation. Yes, it's it's real, people like this, but I I don't want people to want this, you know?
1: Yeah, I I, t- I think that's an uphill battle sort of like fighting human nature there. And I don't like strongly disagree with anything you said there. The last point, I actually wanted to sort of give some ground to something you said where you pointed to specific NFT projects. And I would just say I, It's already happening now, but you have this like class of quote unquote blue chip NFTs. It's so early that it feels funny calling anything blue chip. (laughs) And then you do have these more speculative projects where it's like, okay, they may pull a rug pull. The developers or creators may just like run off with everyone's money and like stop supporting the project. But you already have these like established self-sustaining communities where the developers may not be very involved or involved at all any more in the project and it's self-sustaining at this point, uh, for a similar reason, uh, that Supreme as a brand works, that Rolex as a brand works, that Tesla as a brand works, that Austin, Texas as a brand <laughs> works, you know? So, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. This happened last week, right? Uh, someone ran away. The creator ran away, took all the money, but the members of the community, I forget which one it was, but the members of the community were like, Oh, whatever. We'll just keep it going. So yeah. Good point. Yeah. Um, cool. Cool. I'm I, I'm going to remain a hater but okay. I you're the first person to give me a use case that like would be hard I don't think impossible but hard to do with traditional tech so I'm yeah. I'm I'm inching closer <laughs> I would love to do a follow up episode a year from now, because a year mm-hmm. ago, if
1: we just asked people like in this area of blockchain cryptocurrency, what comes to mind? And it would just be the D5 financial applications. Right. No one would have said art. No one would have said collectibles. Uh, no one would have said NFT farming, which you're getting now. Uh, and I just think a year from now, the use cases we can't even imagine. Like, I don't I'm not. Uh, what's the word? Yeah, I'm just not confident enough that I can even imagine like a year from now what we'll be dealing with in terms of applications. So looking forward to the follow-up. All right, yeah,
0: Yeah, let's revisit.
1: Uh, Cool, what's up next? (laughs) Uh, You want to kick us off for the next one?
0: Yeah, so uh, the next one here is location-adjusted pay for remote workers. So this was a thing before like you know, the pandemic, but with everyone going remote in the pandemic, a lot more companies are supporting remote work, obviously. And especially a lot of companies are retaining the same employees they had who were working from the office, but the employees are moving from San Francisco to Boise. And the question is, do they keep getting paid what they were getting in San Francisco, which is based on a very high cost of living? Uh, very competitive market or do they get paid more what i I'm imagining software engineers here, but this could apply to any industry. They get paid what a software engineer in Boise typically gets paid. Does that more or less sum up the issue here?
1: Yeah, that's my exact understanding. I'm ready to I'm ready to hash it out.
0: Yeah, well what's uh, your and stance just to be here?
1: clear, yeah. <laughs> just to be clear. So location adjusted pay for remote workers, uh, just as a problem statement, I'm assuming that the statement is In favor of location adjusted pay. And I'm bearish on this, not for any sort of like moral reason of this is right or this is wrong. I just don't think that it can stand up. I don't think that it will work because you have this impossible coordination problem where a few years ago there was a like clash action lawsuit brought against Google, uh, Facebook, maybe Apple was in there. And like they were colluding to control pay. Even if that was possible or that was the intention between these companies. How do you organize that on a global scale? All it takes is even with Trends VC, like I'm not interested in like colluding with other companies to depress pay. I don't care if you're located in India or Indiana. Like, I just want the best person that I can find. And I won't switch your pay uh, because I won't lower your pay because of where you're located. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong, or this isn't like status signaling or trying to like signal morally. I'm just saying I think that even if that's 5% of companies out there, that's all it takes to break this sort of cartel that some companies may want to form uh, around talent to like depress pay. I just don't think it's feasible. I don't think that it can stand up or last. So that's why I'm bearish on the location-adjusted pay.
0: All right. Interesting. Because I'm, I'm going to be bullish and that mm-hmm. I think location-adjusted pay is probably mostly where we'll end up. But I agree with everything you just said, except will 5%... Of the market not doing it break break the market, and so let me explain what I mean by that. First of all, I appreciate mm-hmm. that you're not saying this is not a moral argument about what's a r- right or wrong. If you follow like the Twitter sphere and what they're all saying about this, people are getting outraged. Like I can't believe you'd pay people less because they left. Like there's this more like work done in one place is equally valuable as work done in another, and it's like employees have never been paid based on the value of the work they're doing. They're paid based on a market of supply and demand, and companies will pay them as little as they can get away with. Not, not every company. You're saying you wouldn't do that. I don't do this it's less annoying, but the vast majority of jobs out there, the companies are going to pay as little as they can get away with. There's no moral, like morality has nothing to do with it. Do we both agree on that?
1: Yeah, that, that argument, that's, that's the place I like to come from with things like this, where we can save minimum wage until another day, but I would have mm-hmm. a similar framework or model for minimum wage, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So here's my thing: there are definitely some companies that are going to lead the way and say we're not doing location-adjusted pay, meaning mostly what they do is they pick San Francisco market rate and they pay it everywhere. And and the reason for San Francisco is just it's it's the most expensive American city. That's my understanding, anyway. Um, Some will do that, and the very, very best people in India and South America and everywhere else will work for those companies, and they'll get the best talent. But the thing is, despite what everyone says, every company doesn't need the absolute best talent. Like, I used to be a programmer at General Mills. Great company, by the way. I love General Mills. It was awesome working there. I, was, I mean, it was just an internship. But uh, General Mills does not have to hire that top 5%. And they're not going to compete with those companies that are. And the vast majority of jobs, I think, are going to go to companies like that. That's why I don't think that 5% is going to, like, disrupt the market.
1: Yeah, I think if if people sort of, it's not even about expectations. It's about like, where does your skill set fit in this stack or percentile of skill? And if they fit in that 50% and that's what the company is like pegging against of geography or whatever they're pegging against, as long as that (laughs) matches, they'll fit. But as long as they have the understanding that they won't get the best. But I would also like to be a bear on my own bullish argument where I think there's this corner case of if you have a person who says like, hey, I want to work for a FANG company and FANG companies have that leverage to say like, well, hey, we're doing location adjusted pay. How much do you want to work for us? Mm -hmm. They have that leverage. Uh, But if you're dealing with someone who I'm going to, this is, I'm choosing like a set of biased words here, but you have like a more practical person where it's just like, look, I'm optimizing for income or something else other than this brand name of this company and they're actually like in the 90th, 95th percentile,
0: they're not going to play that game.
1: Mm -hmm. They're just not going for it, and they don't
0: have to. So what do you think about the 80th percentile person? Because we may maybe we believe the same thing. Um, I'm just more talking about there are a lot of programmers out there that aren't in the running to work at a FANG company. What do you think happens to them?
1: Yeah, like if we just take geography out of it and like say whatever... Philosophy that company has around compensation, I think that will color uh, the like skill level and probably like the personality type or philosophy uh, of person that like is attracted to that company. So 80th percentile probably fits within the 80%, 80th percentile. I just don't think that you, and I think this applies to most people. That if Facebook says like, "Hey, you live in," you live in Sao Paulo, so we're going to pay you 20% of what we would pay someone who lives in New York. Uh, But that same person has the opportunity to earn a New York wage because despite geography, that's where they're at skill wise. I don't think that most, let's just say developers would take that deal. I think that some would, they're attached to that brand and they want the flex of saying, Hey, I work at Facebook or Netflix or whoever you would throw in this batch of companies. I wouldn't. And maybe that's, but I wouldn't
0: take that deal. (laughs) I agree. I just wonder how many jobs like that there actually are. Do do you happen to know? So Facebook is doing location adjusted pay, I believe. Um, yeah. Are, are there any?
1: Shopify big, has taken a stance. I don't know where they've taken that stance on. I think okay. Twitter has taken the stance of not doing it in terms of we won't adjust based on where you live. It's the same I, I for do everyone about Twitter.
0: Yeah. Okay. It just seems like I mean, what that's going to, yeah. What? I, I, let me ask a more general question here. Are you yeah. like? More or less of the opinion that markets are efficient?
1: Yeah, I'm not one of these like anti capitalism people. <laughs> I will acknowledge, just like uh, hopefully, uh, the capitalist next to me that like capitalism, like, left like, just to its own devices. It's anti competitive. We are going to collude and create these cartels. Uh, but generally speaking, net on net, I think it's a positive thing.
0: Okay, great. And I'm not necessarily saying is it positive. Like if You could yeah. argue efficient isn't good, but
1: does I, the we can system... argue that efficient isn't efficient. I don't think that efficient well, yeah, 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 yeah. on That's devices true. remains efficient. Yeah.
0: What I'm getting at, I guess, is like, do, does the system self-correct to reach some kind of equilibrium? And we we have plenty of examples that sometimes it doesn't. We know, like you said, with cartels and stuff like that. But the real question here, there will be companies that do location-adjusted pay. There will be companies that don't do location-adjusted pay. Over time, this should approach approach some kind of equilibrium. I don't think the companies that don't do a a, a location-adjusted pay will just in perpetuity pay everyone 50% more than their going rate. What they might do is lower the base rate and be like, we're never going to hire anyone in Manhattan or San Francisco. Like I think base camps, some of the bootstrapped companies are are in this boat where they're like, we're doing non-location-adjusted pay based on like Detroit or something like that which is higher cost of living than most places in the world, but lower than the kind of top-tier world cities. It just seems, un- I don't under- I don't see a world where one company is paying way more for talent than they need to.
1: Yeah, I don't see that happening either. And I think that a lot of credit to your argument is this, that like everyone isn't above average, right? So everyone doesn't fit into <laughs> <laughs> this category that we're talking about. What's also interesting here, and I don't think this is cut and dry, is that I think you're right that every company doesn't need uh above average people. Like that's okay. But some companies do. And this gets into the weird argument of like whoever can afford to spend more on a customer wins, whoever can afford mm-hmm. to spend more on talent wins, like that becomes this sort of like self-reinforcing flywheel of sorts. This is a this is a rabbit hole. Just pull me back whenever <laughs> you're ready to pull me back. But it it just has like runaway effects in terms of, okay, like if you're able to create more margins, you're able to spend more on talent, you're able to spend more on like paid distribution. And it just feeds on itself. And there are probably different levers you can pull within the business, independent of the size of your team or the quality of your people. But there are some some businesses out there where it's like these are winner take most markets. You can mm-hmm. roll the dice on talent if you want to, and let's see how the hell that turns out. But then there are these other markets that aren't like that, and it's more fragmented. And you may be okay in that space, and you don't need the best people.
0: Okay, so I actually think we probably mostly agree here. But let, let yeah. me summarize how I'm hearing this because I think you're just focusing more on the best of the best, and I'm focusing more on the kind of the masses, sort of. And I kind of agree. If you're if you live in Nigeria and you are the best in the world at whatever you do, or you know top one percent, I agree. You're going to be able to demand San Francisco wages because it's going to be worth it. Be, because and another way to say this, the person in San Francisco making that amount is being paid close to the value they're providing, rather than according to these other rules. The, the other rules yeah, being like. I- Yeah.
1: I'll I'll attempt to clarify my my case or my argument here where I just question like location as a peg because I I do question of like of course like physical businesses, brick and mortar businesses will always be here. But I think the peg actually becomes skill in most cases. Even though everyone isn't above average, I wouldn't be surprised if in some near future the peg isn't location, but skill where do you index on skill in the company's willingness or philosophy on how much they should pay or how much they can pay for 60-70% of the market it becomes that instead of like this arbitrary location that we've chosen to like peg pay, pay to
0: i don't think it's arbitrary though because and so maybe actually we disagree more than i thought yeah location has a huge influence on the amount of money a person needs to live happily and that's why I think it matters. I agree. It's not like someone in a different country is worthless or whatever to the company, but it's all about negotiating leverage. And that person can live a great life for less money. Um, so unless they're in this position where they are super, super talented, or, or a different model, if, if you're right, I think the natural outcome of that is it would mean the cost of living in every city worldwide starts to normalize, right? Because yeah, everyone's getting paid the same.
1: Yeah, I guess I do have more of a moral problem with this just because, and this is me like acknowledging my bias. Like I've worked in environments where it's like, okay, I'm probably the second best developer here, but I'm on a team of 15, probably like the second worst paid as well. So this is me like bringing identity and bias into it. And I, I just find that hard to sort of wrestle with of, you know, you're in Nigeria or just any arbitrary place. And you're producing the same quality or superior quality work, and us trying to like navigate, well, you don't need that much to live or whatever, so let's pay you less. And again, I tried to stay away from the moral side, and I understand that that doesn't have any bearing on objective reality. Uh, but just sort of like speaking for like a company that I would be a part of or lead, I would have a problem with that. So I think that like the morality, even though I backed up with that in the introduction, it probably does inform my stance more than I thought it did.
0: Okay. Let me give the opposite moral argument here. Yes, yes. Which is that, uh. So I take a pretty unconventional approach to compensation at Less Annoying CRM, which is basically I th- I care about my employees, and the reason we pay them is so they can be happy. It's got nothing to do with the value that they provide to the company. We have to pay them enough that it's about at least equal to their market rate, or else they'll leave. So we have what's called the thriving wage, where we say. Everybody deserves to be able to thrive. It doesn't matter if you're a janitor or receptionist, whatever. You, you deserve the thriving wage. It's kind of arbitrary what it is. In our case, it, it starts at $55,000 a year and goes up to one hundred and twenty five dollars with seniority. Whatever. Those are specifics. But the key is, everyone gets that. And you only get more than that if your market rate forces us to. The argument being, from my morals, if we have enough money to pay people more, I'd rather give it to the people at the bottom, the people who are paid the least, even if they're not bringing as much value, because I don't think like their happiness should be tied to how much value they bring to the company in a perfect world. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying
1: to figure out where to kick off because I have like two major points or questions <laughs> about this. I guess I'll kick off from like the more obvious point, at least for me around like it not being related to the value of the company. I don't think you mean that in an extreme sense that like this is, a role that we may need, but you're actually costing us more than the value that you're contributing. Like, that's not a negative ROI, is it?
0: Right. So we acknowledge that we live in the world we live in and the system. We have to be competitive. And so everyone has to meet a certain bar and be above it to work here at all. Um, But if you're above that bar, like, I wish everybody had their basic needs taken care of without us having to do it. But the reality is we have to do it. And so we're sort of, acting as a sort of capitalist enterprise offering socialist benefits, if that makes sense. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if we did like a pull
0: quote, I think that should be the pull quote <laughs> for this episode. Uh, the other It point, makes everyone mad. Everyone hates this position. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: I'm trying to piss everyone off yeah, That's the way you do it. <laughs> Uh, the other question, I I think this is just me trying to like pull out an assumption that I think I heard when you say that, like, if we have like a surplus of money that the business is generating, you would prefer to give that to the people uh, more towards the bottom of that scale. And that's assuming that there's some type of like shared baseline of happiness that like people, these people are probably above this mean. And as humans, we share some type of, baseline of like what it takes to make us happy. So I would like to bring these people closer to or above the mean at the bottom.
0: Yeah. Do you know like Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Yeah. Basically that idea that there comes a point where more money does not make you happier, but like if you can't pay your bills, more money absolutely makes you happier. So like, let's at least get everyone to that point where like money stops being their, the primary thing, preventing them from being happy.
1: Got it. Got it.
0: All right. Yeah. Even though
1: we may not agree 100% on this, I think I understand your stance at least. Yeah. So to
0: tie this back to the location adjusted pay thing, (laughs) (laughs) what this would mean is I, I could give a moral argument that like someone in, so like St. Louis, where I live, relatively low cost of living city by American standards, someone here does not need as much money to be happy as someone in San Francisco. Now you could of course say, well, the person in San Francisco could just move to St. Louis if they wanted that or whatever. Fair point. I think it's harder to relocate than people say, but um I like I might I think there's a decent argument for saying I'm gonna try to make both of these people equally happy rather than I'm gonna give them the exact same dollar amount.
1: Yeah, that for some reason that offends me as a capitalist. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Yeah, and I'm—I yeah.
0: I'm, have a foot in both worlds. To be clear, like I—I uh, don't—I I definitely don't want the takeaway to be here that like I'm not a capitalist. That's not the yeah. case. But I want a more compassionate. Everyone has their basic needs met before we start getting greedy. That's that's where I want to be.
1: Yeah, but anyways, I, I feel like we're gonna keep this <laughs> as a dead horse. I was just gonna yeah, say yeah. before we start getting greedy, it sounds like even after we can get greedy, the like the sort of the distribution of that upside is also like skewed in some ways that may not mirror like market value.
0: But again, I think I understand. We, we don't yeah, have to okay. like completely agree, but yeah, <laughs> sure. I think I understand where you're coming from. Cool. Um, okay. So we actually st- I, I th- are actually on different sides of this topic, the uh, location adjusted mm-hmm. pay. And despite how the conversation started, I think it comes down to more of a moral argument than like a uh, market driven one.
1: I don't know. It's all I'm at like these two extremes because I ended on a market argument. <laughs> but there is like a moral a moral part of it. And if we sort of like try at, at risk of going back into this rabbit hole, mm-hmm. if we if we take that out, I think we do just end up in a world where whether governments say that like, hey, we approve this or not, you end up in this world where it's like the market is going to rule and it's hard yeah. to collude saying that, like, hey, I expect to only compete. For some companies, this will be the case if you're sort of location-bound with your skill set, if you're a barber or something like that. But if you have skills that can transcend, like, geography, uh, the market will be your only constraint. And that applies to companies
0: that work in those spaces as well as employees that work in those spaces. Okay, so closing thought for me here. If, if, so, yeah, I think I... I Maybe you, we, we, nobody knows what will happen, but I think that let me propose this: if location-based pay is the norm, probably it doesn't have a ton of knock-on effects because people are already being paid based on location with their by by not working remotely, right? Like a person in St. Louis works at a St. Louis company and gets paid according to the St. Louis rates. Person in San Francisco, same. So if everyone's remote, but there's location-adjusted pay probably nothing radically changes about like cost of living and stuff like that in these cities. Whereas if that doesn't happen and everyone gets paid the same, all remote workers get paid the same regardless of where they live. That to me feels like a more interesting future because like who knows what that does to all these cities. Does that seem fair to you? It could be tragic. Like I, I can tell you my orientation when
1: you painted that scenario, it could be really, really bad, right? Where you could have the people that even though they were once remote, now they sort of congeal in this one location with the rest of the like 90th percentile people or whatever pay is pegged to uh but again i do try to stay even though i've talked about like the moral argument early i just try to stay in terms of like as both of us being developers at least by trade okay like let's just follow the logic mm-hmm. and i'm just following the logic in that and i don't think that because I don't like that or I may not like that scenario, that doesn't mean that then I'm going to change like the odds on what oh, I yeah, sure going to happen. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think it's likely. Yeah. I think it's likely that location adjusted pay fails. And I think that that may lead to the situation that you just painted, which is a picture that I may not like of now you have these, I don't want to pick on a particular city, even though one came to mind, <laughs> but a bunch of
0: rich people and then everyone else on the outside. Yeah. 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 Hmm. All right. I think we got time for one more topic.
1: Yeah. I, I like working in threes. Let's, let's knock this <laughs> one down. Uh, since you kicked off the last one, I'll give this one a try. And what we have here for the bullish or bearish topic is startup studio slash portfolio of bets. So startup studios, the way I think about this is like an organization of people and Regardless of whether ideas are sourced from, they're working through this idea, trying to get some type of like business working on the back. Let's turn this idea into a business, and they accept higher failure rates. Portfolio of small bets. This is an idea that was, as far as I'm I know, was popularized by uh, Daniel Vassallo, and it's sort of like the indie version of this. In terms of you know, I may have an ebook and a SaaS app here. They don't necessarily have to be connected, but I'm running the startup studio model. But it's indie style. It may only be one person. Uh, like, what's your understanding just talking about definition of terms?
0: Yeah, yeah, that sounds right to me. So, like, a really common indie thing to do is the 12 startups in 12 months, where you say, every month I'm going to launch a startup. And at the end of the month, I'm, I'm moving on to the next one. Um, and I think the hope is one of these 12 works, not that you like do this for the rest of your life. Is that true at a, a like startup studio? Do you think that they, They want one of them to work and then they go all in on that? Or is the idea that they keep the portfolio long term?
1: The practitioners of startup studios that I've heard from, they tend to be like sort of bearish on the startup studio model because of a similar reason, something I would remind indie makers to think about is around opportunity costs and switching costs. Like invariably, one of these things is going to work (laughs) more or better than the other one. And unless you can like spare that off to have someone focused on it, you know, hundred percent of the time or fully focused on it. So you don't have to pay that opportunity cost. I, I, I just think it's like a bad strategic decision. And I think like com- in terms of like competitive advantage, you might get smoked if you're trying to run a startup mm-hmm. studio and you've hit on this high potential business that you're not willing to go all in on.
0: So you're bearish on the, the startup studio model.
1: Yeah. Like it's, it's sort of a mixed bag with me. It's like contextual. And I don't mean to take, I won't do this a lot in terms of taking a middle stance in terms of bullish and bearish, but it, it depends on the scenario. If you are getting started and you don't know what you want to build, please do this 12 startups in 12 months. Mm. Like do that until you figure that out. But once you find uh, the thing that works, just because, well, it's up to you if you decide to stop doing that because you get bored. But if you get bored or you know, you want to work on something or you're sort of like, Blindly loyal to this like portfolio of small bets or 12 startups in 12 months. I think that's the complete wrong approach uh, and you shouldn't do that because of switching costs and because of opportunity costs. So just getting started, don't know what you want to build, sure, do it. Once you find that thing that's like working and has a lot of potential, please stop doing that. Yeah. That's my
0: stance, yeah. I 100% agree. I'm going to say the same thing with different language. Um, you said switching costs, opportunity costs. Like Another way to explain that same concept is... There's the book uh, Zero to One, and this has kind of become a buzzword in the startup world, right? Going from zero to one is you have absolutely nothing to like you have something. Uh, what's not talked about so often is going from one to two or from two to three. Uh, it is much easier to go from two to three or from one to two than from zero to one. Like going from zero to one is without question the hardest part of starting something. And so if you've got 12 things and you're trying to get them all to one, but one of them gets to one, Spend the next month getting it to, t- not two, you could spend the next month getting it to five and the next month getting it to 25. Things compound, power laws control everything in the world. And it just, you're, you're spending all your time on the hardest part of the startup journey if you are trying to place this portfolio of bets.
1: Absolutely. And I don't want to put words in his mouth. I can't remember who said this, but for some reason, Nathan Berry, it wasn't Nathan Berry. It was uh, Noah from AppSumo. Okay, Noah Kagan. I think that's his name, mm-hmm. Noah Kagan, mm-hmm. where he may have done an AMA and people were asking him, like, what's the biggest mistake you made with that sumo? And it was taking these things like these sort of paths away from the main business and imagining mm-hmm. where they could be if they didn't get distracted. So it's just kind of looking forward to, like you said, dumping that same energy, that same capital into the thing that's working instead of saying like, hey, I'm going to dilute my focus and attention and energy with trying to bring this other thing from zero to one. Because in most cases, like you said, you might get zero to one, but you could have been (laughs) one to 10 if you would have just focused.
0: Yeah. So some more examples of this. I I think you said it's not Nathan Berry, although he had a similar story. He's the founder of ConvertKit. He was like doing services and selling info products and wasn't sure. He he was running ConvertKit for a long time, but he hadn't really gone all in on it. And he hit this fork in the road where he's like, I'm either going to stop ConvertKit or I'm going to stop all this other stuff. Now ConvertKit is making 30 million a year ARR fully bootstrapped. It's second to basecamp maybe the best true indie story out there. Um and again it's cuz he doubled down. Another example that comes to mind is Riley Chase from uh, hostify.com. Uh, he's someone I knew kind of early in his journey so I like watched it happen where he had this portfolio of bets and he got one of them was working hostify.com and he he kind of posted publicly on Twitter like I'm. This is going great. Now I have the money to invest in, it, you know, another idea, and I and a handful of other people are like, no, 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 like go after that one you've got, which is what he did, and he likes it a lot. So maybe it's survivorship bias or whatever, but I do think there are a lot of examples of like people benefiting from doubling down on what's working.
1: Yeah, we can probably continue ping ponging this all day, but Pat Walls <laughs> from Starter Story. <laughs> yeah, where yeah. He got distracted with the uh, pigeon CRM for Gmail, and then he ended up like selling that and doubling down on a Starter Story. So,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, case after case after case <laughs> of this. So, slightly different, but sa- similar topic. Like, on the, this is less the portfolio of small bets and more the startup studio thing. Another reason I'm bearish on it is uh, I think that entrepreneurship is only possible under certain circumstances. And I think as much as companies like to say, we hire entrepreneurs and we have a very entrepreneurial entrepreneurial culture, there's nothing like being the person in charge and 100% controlling your own destiny. I think it's very, very difficult to employ other people who will behave like founders. And that's why I'm always skeptical of these kind of like larger organizations that are trying to spin off startups from within
1: yeah and even if i could think of exceptions that's all it would be were exceptions Mm -hmm. that prove the rule that you just stated completely
0: agree. yeah or like twitter is one twitter came from one of these things i believe but do you even know the name of it i don't (laughs) yeah it was like a podcast
1: directory they were supposed to compete with apple Podcasts, but you can even argue that that was more of an entrepreneurial environment there where like that didn't work maybe it was too early and then Twitter was sort of their, like, trump card, but that came yeah. out of that same, like,
0: small team, that intimate environment. Yeah, but I I could be getting this wrong. I think Jack Dorsey was not one of the founders of the company he worked, that, that started Twitter. Um, he was yeah. just, like, the person who had this idea that did it. So that is sort of an exception to this. But even in that case, Twitter consumed whatever that was. I don't even remember the name of it. So, mm-hmm. uh yeah, I I don't know of many models of a a business that continues running multiple successful startups, like that are all kind of like equals to each other. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, we can we can talk about Elon Musk <laughs> and all these other things, but it's like he didn't even start mm.
0: Tesla. He yeah, he he bought in the Tesla. I don't, he and didn't took it start over. SpaceX either, did he? Maybe not. I thought he acquired yeah. or got, yeah, got in later on both of those even if
1: we had like the best uh attorney here it's like they would just bring <laughs> outliers, and i wouldn't be mm-hmm. convinced
0: so yeah i think i think you're right all right so uh that's what it's like to totally agree on something okay <laughs>
1: <laughs> we did not plan that
0: <laughs> yeah yeah we didn't talk about any of these i think it's nice we uh, kind of were on opposite sides of two and on the same yeah. same side of one of these so cool awesome. this is a fun conversation why don't you uh i In case people want to hear us talk, like analyze ourselves, what do you think about this format? How'd it go for you?
1: It was fun. It was fun. It sort of reminds me of uh, red teaming, which I just did in a mastermind of like be as adversarial as possible. (laughs) And like, we're just trying to like steal and hone these ideas. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it was fun. What about you?
0: I I enjoyed it. I, uh, I've never done debate like in school or anything, but I think- Mm -hmm. I don't think my school had a debate team, but if it did, I've always thought I would just love it. Like even if I have to argue a point that I totally disagree with, I kind of enjoy the the exercise of it. Um, And I didn't say anything. Everything I said today, I actually believe. But (laughs) if for no other reason, I think it's fun to debate.
1: (laughs) Yeah, confession. I did model you in uh, throughout high school, and yeah, that was just crazy because the like you said regardless of what you believe you will lose the model UN competition if you don't adopt the stance of the country that you're representing so if I'm turkey mm. whatever turkey believes you just got to go i have to go in there and push that point yeah and that's the whole room could be against you but as long as you sort of like represent that interest well you can still win which is very interesting
0: huh that's cool yeah, yeah i don't i don't even really know how the rules work or anything but th- this reminds me i'm going to Sorry, belabor the point just a little. Uh, do you follow like Michelle Hansen, who just put out "Deploy Empathy"? Is she on your radar? I've heard of "Deploy Empathy" a lot, okay. but I have—I can't put a face to her name. Yeah, it's a book that recently came out about how to do customer interviews well, um, which I've started. But ha- so I'm about to like—I've only read one chapter, and I'm about to share what's in that chapter. But she's kind of defining like what empathy means uh, versus, say, sympathy uh, is kind of a similar but slightly different thing, and her. I'm going to butcher this, but her explanation is like, it's to appreciate that from another person's worldview, they are correct, which is, which doesn't mean they're right. Like you don't have to agree with them, but it's to understand, not just to like appreciate who, like what they believe and accept it, but to actually accept that from their perspective, they're right. And why that's true. Um, So like when you're talking to customers, super valuable to be like, okay, our product isn't going to go the direction you want it to go but i get why you want it to go the direction you want it to go that type of thing that reminds me a lot of this debate thing cuz it's like even if you're arguing a point you're not sure of or something you have to think through anyway i'm i'm blabbering you get what i'm saying
1: <laughs> no and i get why you're saying this about empathy because that's exactly what it is like you have to step into that situation and like divorce again what you believe and like it is just a great way to force empathy
0: Yeah. So Cool. Well, so we've done two formats now. We did the kind of uh, giving updates and talking about random topics. We've done the bullish or bearish. I believe we're doing the book club next week, or uh, I guess two weeks from now when we record. Is that right?
1: Yep. Yep. That sounds good. And I have to finish this book, Confession.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'm like halfway through it. So (laughs) Cool. Cool. Well, for anyone who uh, tunes in for the next episode, yeah, we uh, are both reading a book and we'll talk about it and we'll see if that format lands. Looking forward to it. Good talking to you, Drew. You too, man.